0: Death is a constant reminder to every generation, sin came into the world, and the consequence is death. Death is unnatural. What God had established at creation, the soul being united with the body, death comes along and tears the soul away from the body. Death is an abomination. In our text this morning, the Thessalonians are grieving because what death has done. And Paul writes to them to inform them of the hope they have in their grief. A hope that revolves around what Jesus has done and what he will still yet do. Let's read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. This is the word of God. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Death has come to the Thessalonian church family. And they're grieving because what death has done to a brother and or sister. And Paul writes to them to inform them of this hope that they have in their grief, a hope revolving around what Jesus has done and what he will still yet do. But before we can get into the text, we have to understand what death has done. We have to understand why they're grieving. Because the reason why the Thessalonians are grieving is slightly different from the way that we grieve today. We grieve because we've lost the presence of a brother or sister. We have memories. We have shared experiences that we can no longer have with them because death has taken them away. The Thessalonians certainly grieve from that aspect. But more so, their grief is because they understand what death has done to the soul and the body. At creation, God establishes the soul with the body. He unites the soul with the body. And death comes along and tears the soul away from the body. The Thessalonians grieve because they know that that happens and they question. They're asking Paul in the report of what happens to this brother or sister who we care so much for. What happens to their soul? What happens to their body? Will it ever be reunited again? Or will death Always have victory over this person. And Paul writes to them to tell them, grieve because of what death has done, yes, but grieve with hope because of what Jesus has done. Let's look down at verse 13. If we were an English professor, we'd take the red pen out and we'd circle the double negative that we see right away there. But we do not... Want you to be uninformed. That's a double negative. And in the English language, that's not okay to do. But in the Greek language, that's actually a good thing to have a double negative. It tells the hearer, it tells the audience, that whatever point is being made here is important. So when we look at verse 13 and we see the double negative and realize there's not just one, but there's two double negatives. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, we realize Paul's not just making an important point, he's making a really important point here. And if we were to translate this into proper English, we would read it as, we want you to be informed so that you may grieve as those who have hope. Again, Paul is wanting to inform them of this hope they have in their grief. And remember that Paul had to slip out at night. Paul had to lead them suddenly, so there were things he wasn't able to expound on, things he wasn't able to go further into, and we can certainly take from this that talking about death is something that he needs to expound more so on. And I just want to stop just for a minute before we get into it and say we may understand that the soul will one day be reunited with the body, but let's not assume that we know everything or that we even understand everything That Paul's saying to them of the hope that revolves around what Jesus does. Let's go in with thinking there may be things where we need to be sharpened on. There may be things where we need to be strengthened on on what we know of this hope and what Jesus has done and will still yet do. We look down at verse 14. Grieve with hope, Thessalonians, because Jesus died and rose again. Jesus physically went to the cross. And we don't have to go into great detail about that because it was only on Good Friday that Pastor Jeff went into great detail about the pain and the agony that Jesus had to suffer on the cross. And I don't have to reteach what's already been taught just a month ago. But I will say Isaiah tells us that the Christ being crucified, he was marred beyond human semblance. So in our day today, we have pictures, we have monuments, we have statues of Jesus being on the cross, and everybody knows that that's Jesus there. But realize, he was beaten so severely that he was unrecognizable. Jesus physically died on the cross, and he was physically buried in a tomb, his body decaying and rotting for three days. And yet three days later, The Gospels tell us that he rose again. That he physically rose and walked out of that tomb. The Gospels tell us that he was walking. He was talking with his disciples. That he was breathing and cooking and eating. What did he eat? It was fish. Fish is high in protein. It's got a lot of amino acids, which is good for exfoliating your skin. Jesus didn't care about any of that because he rose with a body that was physically restored and renewed Luke tells us in Acts 1 that his disciples are all around him, and he ascends to heaven, to the right hand of God the Father. Physically renewed, restored body in that way. Grieve with hope, Thessalonians, because Jesus died and rose again. And if you look down at 14, you'll see that Paul doesn't spend a lot of time on that. That's only five or six words. And then he moves on to his next point. And we've discussed already how Paul will say doctrinal theological things, and he won't expound on them. And this is another example of it, where the Thessalonians already have this foundational truth of the gospel here. They know, they believe, they understand Jesus did die. He did rise again. And so we look at 14, and we get to more so of what the Thessalonians are grieving over. Remember, This brother or sister who has died, their soul is no longer with their body. Will death have victory over them? Will their soul and their body ever be reunited again? And so looking down at 14, we see Paul move on to a second and saying, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Let's address the term asleep, because Paul uses it in 13, 14, and in 15, three times, where he says asleep. And I think most of us understand, because New Testament writers will use this, Paul will use it in other letters, where he uses sleep as a euphemism for dead. A euphemism is using a softer word in the place of a harsher word. So instead of saying dead or died, Paul says sleep. But he also uses sleep in the sense of a metaphor. You and I fell asleep last night, and our bodies weren't moving, but that was only temporary. We all woke up this morning, obviously. Hopefully, we're all still awake. But temporarily, our bodies were asleep for that time. And in the same way, Paul's saying, Grieve with hope, Thessalonians, because these brothers and sisters who have died, their bodies are temporarily in the ground. But Paul's also using sleep as a metaphor for the soul, too. Because just in the same way that you and I fell asleep last night and our bodies were not moving, we were still dreaming. Whether you remember your dream or not, we were still dreaming. Our brains were still active in that way. And in the same way, when we die, the body goes into the ground, but the soul still stays active. A good example of this is in Acts 7. Stephen's standing before the High Council, and he's been preaching, teaching that Jesus is the Christ. The High Council doesn't like that. Stephen doesn't use any euphemisms. He uses very harsh language towards the high council because they crucified Jesus. They obviously don't like that. They decide, we're going to stone Stephen. And Luke is specific to say that Stephen gazes into heaven and sees the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. And as they begin to stone Stephen, Luke says, Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then after they get done stoning Stephen, Luke is specific to say Stephen fell asleep. Brothers took Stephen's body. They buried it in the ground. His soul went to be with heaven. So grieve with hope, Thessalonians, because the body going into the ground is only temporary. The soul going to be in heaven is only temporary. And that leaves us to needing to talk maybe a half minute about heaven because in our day-to-day the American church maybe even our own church maybe even you and I we may put a little too much emphasis on heaven being the final resting place heaven can't be the final resting place there has to be something more because if heavens the final resting place that means Rebecca's soul is in heaven right now finding rest and relief from the suffering which is a good thing but her body's in the ground, which yes, it's finding rest and relief from the suffering, that's a good thing, praise God. But if her body's or if her soul is in heaven and her body's in the ground, what what God had established at creation, the soul being united with the body, death still has victory right now. Because Rebecca's soul and body are not united. And this is where the Thessalonians are grieving. This is where their concern is, is what happens to these people, these brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep? What happens? Does death always have victory over their soul and body? There has to be something more. And so in our day-to-day, if we think that heaven is the final resting place, if we think that that's it, Well then we're not seeing the finality of the gospel there has to be something more death can't have the final victory and Paul tells them have hope in your grief because God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep the next thing that does happen is Jesus's return and at that time God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep two assurances here is that God's the one working You look down at verse 14 and you see God will bring. If we think back throughout the letter, Paul says we're thankful to God the Father for what he's doing in and through you Thessalonians. If we think about the way that he says two weeks ago Nathan taught that we pray to God the Father that he directs your ways. Last week Bobby taught how Paul doesn't need to instruct them any further on how to love one another because it's God who had already taught them how to love one another. So Thessalonians, if you truly believe that it's God doing the work in and through you, if you truly believe that it's God who is directing your ways, will have hope, have assurance. This same God is going to bring these brothers and sisters whose bodies have fallen asleep. He's not gonna forget them. Another assurance is that looking down at 14, we see the name Jesus twice. And we have already talked about how in this letter, Paul describes Jesus. He uses the title Lord quite frequently. Other areas, he'll say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. He'll say Son of God, but here he doesn't use a title for Jesus. He just simply says the name Jesus. So he's not speaking necessarily to the Trinity or the Godhead of Jesus, but the physical flesh and blood, saying to the Thessalonians, Flesh and blood, Jesus hung on the cross. Flesh and blood, Jesus died and was buried in a tomb. And yet, flesh and blood, Jesus rose again and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. So Thessalonians, be assured of this hope that you have, that we have, that God, if he's going to do that small detail for Jesus, he's not going to forget to raise the bodies of, Of those brothers and sisters who you love that have fallen asleep. If that wasn't enough, Paul stamps it in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. He tells them, the Lord promises that these things will take place. The Lord promises that God's not going to forget these brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep. And we don't often use the title Lord. It's more Old English, it's more European English, but if we did use the title Lord, a good example would probably be Karen Harris, Lord of the Kitchen Ministry. And you think about Karen's character, you think about the command that she has on Sunday, potluck Sundays in the kitchen. Every word that she says, we in the kitchen, we listen to it. Every word she says, we follow it in the kitchen. You contrast this to Bobby Ray's. Nobody would think of Bobby as Lord of the Finance Committee. We call him the chair of the Finance Committee. A chair you sit on, you stand on, you fold it up, you toss it around. You can't do that to Karen. Karen folds you up. She tosses you around. She'd snap Bobby like a twig. The title Lord brings the sense of authority, power, dominion. So realize what Paul is saying here. We have a promise from the Lord, the Lord who went to the cross, the Lord who took on your sin and my sin, the Lord who defeated that sin, paid that penalty, defeated death because he rose from that tomb, the Lord who ascended to the right hand of God the Father, that Lord promises us that these things will take place. It's that Lord who says, brothers and sisters, You have hope in what God did for the Lord. He's not going to forget to do it for these brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep, these brothers and sisters who you care so much for. Grieve with hope, Thessalonians, because we have a promise from the Lord these things will take place. Do you know the Lord? these things that he has already done, do you know, do you understand, do you believe these things? Because friend, if you don't know, understand, if you don't believe the things that the Lord has already done, where does your hope revolve around when you die? Looking down at verse 15, Paul moves on and says, we who are alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord. That phrase that he uses there, we who are alive, we who are left. He repeats that again in verse 17. And there's two aspects I want to bring from this perspective that Paul has and the Thessalonians have. The first is that this tells us a little bit more in greater evidence, greater detail of the Thessalonians' love for one another that Bobby had taught last week that Paul shares with us at the beginning of chapter four in saying, we don't need to teach you further on how to love one another, you guys are already doing it. This love extends beyond the grave because here's the perspective. They think the Lord is going to return in their lifetime. Not to say they think they're going to live until the Lord returns, but they think the Lord is going to return. And I would argue from the text that they're actually believing that, yep, it's going to be any day now that the Lord returns. And we're grieving so much because we don't know what's going to happen to these brothers and sisters who have died. What happens to their soul and body when the Lord returns? They care about so much. They care about each other so much in that way. It extends beyond the grave. But the other aspect I'd bring out is if we think about throughout the letter, Paul tells the Thessalonians, you guys are an example to all other believers. It's your guys' testimony of faith that everywhere I, Paul, go, I'm already hearing about your guys' testimony of faith. They're already telling me this. Paul is so certain He has so much confidence that they've been chosen by God. And I would put forth to us that it might be because they expect the Lord to return any day now. And they want to be found living, walking in a manner worthy of God. And their viewpoint may be too far over here. It may be almost unbiblical to view it in that way of, I know the Lord will return in my lifetime. Next week, Nathan's going to teach how Paul tells us, we don't know the time, we don't know the day. So I'm not saying, let's be way over here where the Thessalonians are. I'm saying, maybe that's too far over that way. But I think we're way too far over here on the spectrum. When was the last time that you thought about Jesus' return? When was the last time you ever studied it or even prayed for the Lord's return? We don't talk about it. We don't have deep discussions on the Lord's return. And I'm saying, let's be more in the happy median over here. Where if we were more aware that, yeah, it's a very good possibility that Jesus could return in our lifetime. Well, would that change the way you talk to your spouse this afternoon? Would it change the topic of discussion you had with your children over lunch? If you actually believed that it was a possibility that Jesus could return in our lifetime, could return by this Saturday, well then would it change your interactions at work? Or how you prioritized your energy this week? We don't talk about the Lord's return. We don't talk about the Lord coming back. And I put forth to us that that might be something we need to be talking more so about. Not again as what the Thessalonians truly believed that it would happen any day now. But just in a healthy way, Of this, would it change how we were living as an example of our faith and our testimony? We need to talk about the coming of the Lord, not just because we, it's good for our soul, but because it goes on into the next part of the text. Paul tells the Thessalonians, grieve with hope because of what Jesus has already done. In verse 16 and 17, he moves on to say, grieve with hope because of what Jesus will still yet do. Verse 16 and 17, we have a sequence of events of the Lord coming back. And verse 16 kicks us off by saying, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. The obvious thing is that it's gonna be the Lord. That's why Paul says the Lord himself is gonna descend from heaven. It's not gonna be anybody else. The unobvious thing, though, Is that it's gonna be the Lord meaning remember the first time that the Lord came to earth he went to the cross he died on that cross he took on your sin he took on my sin he paid the penalty he didn't deserve and then he rose from that tomb and ascended to the right hand of God the Father the Lord doesn't need to be coming back we need to be the ones going to him Wherever he is, we need to be the ones going to him and bowing down. And yet, again, the Lord's going to make the first move. Grieve with hope, Thessalonians. Because we have a Lord who's coming back for his people. And that's all we get visually. Literally look down and see. Verse 16 doesn't give us a whole lot of visual detail. It gives us audible detail. We hear the cry of command. We hear the voice of the archangel. We hear the sound of the trumpet of God. And I say that's all we get visually because when you think about any other account of the Lord's return, there's great detail visually about what's going to take place. You could just look over at the next page in most of our Bibles. You see the second letter, the second Thessalonians. And Paul goes into great visual detail about the Lord returning with fire and with mighty angels, vengeance being inflicted. You think about Joel or Matthew. You think about Revelation. Just about any other account of the Lord's return. And there's great visual detail of what's going to take place. And here we don't have that. We have audible. And it makes us scratch our heads. It makes us think that's a little odd. Until you think, oh yeah, the Thessalonians are grieving because brothers and sisters have fallen asleep. Their bodies are asleep in the ground. And so the first thing that we hear when the Lord returns is a cry of command. Note that this comes directly from the Lord. It's the Lord Himself who gives this cry of command. He's the one in charge. Contrast this though to the cry of agony that Jesus gives out on the cross the cry of the sacrificial lamb being slain. That's not this cry. This is a cry of authority and power and dominion. This is a cry that lets all of creation know the Lord's coming back. And just as on a Friday evening in a busy restaurant, the chef will yell out an order, and the sous chef repeats that order so everybody in the kitchen knows what the chef just yelled out. But also, so everybody in the kitchen knows the chef is the one who has the authority, the power, the dominion. And in that same way, the cry of command goes out from the Lord and the voice of the archangel repeats that cry so that everybody knows what Jesus just said, but also to let all of creation know the Lord's coming back. Get ready to bow down, get ready to submit, And then we hear the trumpet blast. The trumpets throughout history, throughout Israel's history, have always signified something. You think of Saul blasting the trumpet with a great victory over the Philistines. The trumpets were blasted to call the people to assemble, to gather together. I think both of those go very well with our context. There's a great victory that's about to happen. Assemble the people together. Gather them together. In South Africa, there's a gold mine that's 2.5 miles underneath the Earth's surface. They've been digging this thing since 1986, so if I do my math right, that's 36 years they've been digging this thing. 4,000 miners employed at various levels, but even those at 2.5 miles or even further are going to hear this event take place when the Lord Jesus being that far underneath the surface, they're still going to hear the Lord's cry of command. Even if you're on the other side of the world, you're going to hear this cry of command go off. You could say that people who have been sleeping for thousands of years, they're going to hear the Lord's return. On that day, Thessalonians grieve with hope. Because yes, God created at creation, He established the soul with the body. And yes, death comes along and tears the soul away from the body. But on that day, when the Lord returns, the Lord is going to reestablish the soul with the body. He's going to take those that are dead in Christ. He's going to raise their bodies. And the soul and the body will be reestablished. Death will be defeated on that day. Have hope in this. The dead in Christ will rise first. It's the same sequence as verse 15, so there's there's good in that. It's similar to what Paul's saying from verse 15, but also realize, because names have been a big thing, realize that Paul says Christ here. He doesn't say Lord, he doesn't say Jesus, he doesn't say Son of God. He says the Christ, those that are dead in the Christ, the anointed one. Thessalonians, these brothers and sisters that you grieve so much over, whose souls have been torn away from their bodies, Thessalonians, even us today, who we grieve so much for brothers and sisters who are no longer present with us, realize that just as the Christ was anointed, God has anointed these brothers and sisters who have died because they're dead in Christ. He is not going to forget one of them. They'll all be brought back when Jesus returns. Have hope in that. And then we who are alive, then we who are left, will be caught up. We'll be snatched away. Nothing we can do about it. Nothing that we'll want to do about it anyway. But we'll be caught and taken away. And the main thing here is, we'll be together with them. Do you realize what this is saying? Those that we grieve for, that aren't present with us today, these brothers and sisters who we care so much for, have memories with, we'll be together with them again. Brothers and sisters who we've only read about, we'll meet them, we'll be together with them. Brothers and sisters who we have no idea are brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to meet them and be with them on this day. This is going to be the largest family reunion ever on this day. I mean, imagine it from Adam all the way to whoever dies just before the Lord returns. Their bodies are going to rise up, and their souls are going to be reunited with them. And then we are going to be taken away, and we will all be together, the church fully united On that day, we'll be together with them in the clouds. And you may think in the clouds that's the same thing as in the air, but it's not. In the clouds, you could go back to Acts 1 and see the reference of how Jesus ascends to the right hand of God the Father, and it's the clouds that take him up. But let's go back even further. Because the Israelites wandering through the wilderness, what leads them through the day? It's the cloud. And who's present in the cloud? It's God. You think about Mount Sinai. God descends in a cloud at the top of Mount Sinai. You think about Moses talking in the tabernacle, in the doorway, there's a cloud. And who's present in the cloud? It's God. So do you realize what this is saying to us? That we're not just going to be together with those that we love that are dead in Christ. We're going to be present in God's presence. That means that Rebecca, being united with her body again, it's not going to be her sinful body any longer. She'll be in a body that's renewed, that's restored, that's able to be in the presence of God It means that those of us who are alive right now, if the Lord returns right now, we're not going to be in these old sinful bodies. Dolores is not gonna have her gangsta swag walk anymore. She's gonna be in a renewed, a restored body. Russ isn't gonna need a second hip surgery. Realize, young people, as many health problems as we have, we're not going to meet the Lord in these bodies. We'll be in restored. Renewed bodies that just in the same way as our Lord ascended to the right hand of God the Father and was able to be in his presence without rotting, stinking, decaying flesh, he was renewed, we will be renewed as well. Can it get better than that? Yes. Because we're not going to be in the sinful bodies. Just as Jesus, who had taken on our sin, didn't ascend to God the Father in a sinful body, he was able to be in the presence of holy God. We will be in the same. Realize our bodies won't just physically be renewed and restored, but we will not have any sin on us. We will be holy as God is holy on that day. We look down at verse... 17, we'll be together, we'll be in the cloud, we'll be present with God, we'll meet the Lord in the air. And I don't think Paul was necessarily intentional in saying this because Thessalonians was written before Ephesians, but I certainly think God was intentional in having this tagline of in the air this will take place. Do you think about what Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 2? The prince of the power of the air is Satan. And his demons. And so when you think, we are going to meet together with brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep, the Lord will resurrect them. He will snatch us, take us away. We'll be in the presence of God. The Lord is coming back, not just for his church, but to meet his bride. And it's going to happen on Satan's home court. Ultimate authority, power, and dominion will be on display on that day. The Lord is not just taking death down, but any enemy of the Lord's will be thrown down on that day. Grieve with hope because we have a Lord who is the Lord. Encourage one another with these words and realize that from that day forward, we're not gonna want to talk about death death will not bring us fear it won't bring us anger or resentment death will not cause us to feel lonely or despair because from that day forward we will be with our Lord forever brothers and sisters do you believe these words do you understand Do you know, do you truly believe these words? Because that's what Paul says, encourage one another with. And notice he doesn't say, only take verse 14, Jesus died and rose again and encourage one another with that. He says the full gospel. Do you believe the Lord will return? And that on that day, we will be resurrected and we will be together. And from that day forward, we'll be with him forever. That's the finality of the gospel. It's with the finality of the gospel that we encourage one another with. Grieve. Grieve now because death is horrible. Grieve now because death does have victories in tearing the soul away from the body, but have hope because those victories are temporary. Have hope in what the Lord has already done and what he will still yet do. Let's pray.